This is the Foot in the Box podcast for the week of Monday, September 19th. And now, please rise for the singing of our Welcome to episode 68 of the A Foot in the Box podcast. My name is Peter Elliott. And I'm Peter's more intelligent brother, Paul Elliott. Wow. Mixing it up a bit. Yes. Uh, yeah, we're twin brothers. Paul apparently thinks he's more intelligent than I. How's it going, Paul? It's going all right. I uh, I was on Benson duty all day yesterday. Kate was in St. Louis, so I'm kind of tired today. But other than that, I'm doing well. Yeah, how'd, uh, how'd um, single fatherhood go this weekend? It's hard. I don't know how single moms or single dads do it like while they work still. You would almost have to have like family nearby or something because it's exhausting. How's your weekend? It's good. Yep, uh, went to the Atlanta game yesterday. I thought you said your weekend was good. <laughs> they uh, got slaughtered. We'll talk to uh, Kevin later about that, but... Uh, not good. The Levy era, uh, the honeymoon phase is definitely over. Um, but I saw two movies this weekend: Sully uh, with Tom Hanks and um, Hell or High Water. Uh, both both pretty good movies. Uh, Hell or High Water is the one I enjoyed more. Um, What's give me the plot in twenty seconds? Uh, it's West Texas, kind of desert land. Economy is not doing well out there, and two guys rob a bank, rob a, a bunch of different banks to uh, pay off the bank. True story? No. Well, I assume someone has done something similar, but yeah, pretty uh, interesting movie if you like action, if you like some financial stuff, it's a good one for you, uh, so go check that out. Uh, Jeff Bridges is in the movie, he's good. Moving on. Our Nelly fun fact this week, uh, some pretty big news on the Nelly front. Uh, I searched Nelly every week on Google, and uh, there was finally a Google News thing that popped up. Uh, so this comes from Time Magazine. Uh, Nelly is in some hot water with the IRS. So I'll just quote from the article. Following unsubstantiated reports by TMZ that uh, the country grammar rapper owes a large sum to the IRS, Spin, which I believe is a website or magazine, uh, they came up with a clever way to rally behind Nelly. Writer Brian Joseph proposed that fans stream Hot in Here at least a collective 287 million times so that Nelly could earn a sizable Spotify payout. According to Spotify, the payout for artists per stream averaged between 0.006 and 0.0084 cents. Or dollars, point zero zero eight four dollars, which means that if Nelly lands on the minimum end of this scale, he would need four hundred and two million streams to earn enough to significantly decrease the alleged debt with the IRS. Uh, this proposition inspired the hashtag Save Nelly, with fans sharing the lengths they were willing to go to support uh, the rapper. If anything, this tells us that the love for Nelly is still going strong. Uh, and then a uh, follow-up article also from Time. Less than a week later, it looks like the Save Nelly campaign has already helped Nelly rack up some major airtime on Spotify. Uh, 
Spotify told Time that streams of Nelly during peak listening hours have tripled compared to the previous week. Tripled, but they need quite a bit more than that to. Yeah, and so <laughs> exactly. If you search for um, hashtag Save Nelly on Twitter, though, you get some pretty hilarious things. Uh, one person said uh, he listened to Hot in Here sixty times overnight on silent. He just had it going on his <laughs> iPhone. Um, so. Yeah, it's a fun a fun search if you're bored on Twitter. Um, yeah, Nelly. Uh, I don't I don't understand if he owes the IRS money. I don't understand why uh, why we're helping him. Well, like, you said, like you said oh, was, I, I I have college loan debt. Would someone help me pay for it? You said it was unsubstantiated. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's true or not. But it just means that it couldn't verify it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So we'll uh, we'll keep up on this. See uh, see what the Nelly situation is. What do you got from around baseball, Paul? The general manager of the Padres suspended 30 days, A.J. Preller. Uh, he apparently was asking trainers to uh, to not log information correctly or to hide certain information from, from teams that they were trading with, which I was uh, very optimistic about when I saw the headline because the White Sox traded for James Shields. So I was hoping there would be some sort of compensation, but it looks like it's uh, specific to their deal um, around Drew Pomerantz to the the Red Sox. Yeah, and the Red Sox gave up their top one of their top prospects to get him back. Right to get Pomerantz. So a lot of Red Sox fans are pretty upset. I thought it was interesting though. Uh, Buster only was writing about it, and he had a source that said so. Essentially, there each team is on the honor system to input uh, information into this system that everyone uses. So the trainers of the Padres would you know be asked to if they're giving treatment to a player, they enter that into the system. And then when you make a trade, you exchange codes with the you know the other team's trainer so that they can access that information. Uh, around the the trade deadline, the Padres had around ten entries total for the entire season, whereas other teams had like sixty to seventy. So I'm somewhat confused at how um, like Preller thought they were going to get away with this. Um, essentially, the only thing they were putting in there was like a guy went to the DL, which you could find just by googling you know, a player. So uh, it sounds like Preller's reputation around the league is going to take a hit. I don't know that this will actually impact the Padres in any way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not a very high opinion of him right. in many circles to begin with. Uh, Matt Bush updates. Another pretty normal week. Two and two-thirds innings pitched. Zero runs. Four strikeouts. I looked. Um, he only has one hit by pitch all year, and that was the second game of, the, uh, of his year when he – Hit Jose Bautista with, um, you know, the big Ranger Blue Jay dust up uh, that Sunday game in um, early May. So uh, pretty. So fun. he he hasn't had any unintentional. <laughs> well, he only had one hit by pitch all year, and that was Jose Bautista. John Gray of the Rockies on Saturday night set a team record and a course field record with 16 strikeouts. Amazing. Nine innings pitched, only four hits, uh, no walks. By far the best game ever pitched at Coors Field. Uh, probably by far the, the best game ever thrown by a, a Rocky pitcher. Um, Randy Johnson had struck out 14 at Coors Field, and Daryl Kyle had struck out 14 in Montreal in 1998. So they had the records for Coors Field and the Rockies beforehand. Yeah, I saw where Brooks Baseball did a thing where um, uh, 52 or Gray generated 52 swings on his pitches during the start. And um, the Padres, is that who they were playing? Yeah. Missed 
uh, half of them. Like they twenty six. Yeah. So just amazing. That's a really high number. Um, anything I think anything over like ten is seen as right. Nine or ten is seen as really good. I'm uh, kicking myself because um, I've started to use this game changer uh, web app thing that automatically switches from different games on MLB TV, and I had it set where I was only watching games that were had like playoff implications, and uh, so I missed out on probably one of the top five starts this year. No, oh, definitely. Especially uh, when you factor uh, the park involved. Yeah. So, uh, looking at um, fan graphs, they actually, as of Sunday morning, they like the Red Sox chances to make the World Series more than the Cubs. Mm-hmm. Thought that was interesting. The Red Sox, according to fan graphs, 32.2% versus the Cubs, uh, just a little bit smaller, 31% chance to make the World Series. Um, thought that was interesting. Of course, the Red Sox this weekend uh, won the first three games against the Yankees. They play on Sunday Night Baseball. Uh, going for the four-game sweep. Um, Hanley Ramirez started that series off with a huge three-run walk-off homer against the Yankees. Um, kind of, I think, killed any chances of the playoffs for the Yankees and really propelled the Red Sox to the division. Uh, yeah, well, that, I mean, the Red Sox had another come-from-behind win yesterday. They were down 5-2 to two and came back and won 6-5. to five. Yeah, pretty frustrating series for the Yankees and their fans, I'm sure. Another pretty dramatic game that has... You know, significant playoff implications. The Cardinals kind of held on to their season last night. I feel like I didn't. I saw the score. What happened in that game? Uh, they were down two to one in the ninth and scored two runs. They had two outs when they scored those two runs too. So if they would lost that, they would have gone to uh, three games back uh, with one more game against the Giants. And so they won it. And now they're they're two back of both the Mets and the Giants. Yeah, big win for the Cardinals. Um, I also wanted to note Dick Enberg is retiring at the end of the year. This kind of slipped past uh, most baseball fans because of all the Vin Scully stuff. Uh, wow, that is yeah, that's sad that yeah, we haven't he, acknowledged him at all. He got elected to the uh, Hall of Fame or won the Fortrick Award last year. Um, would encourage you to go listen to his uh, induction speech. Very good. We played it on the podcast last summer. Both uh, Scully and Enberg are friends. Um, so we tweeted out a video of them reminiscing um, a couple weeks ago, too. So very good stuff. And, um, yeah, two great baseball announcers retiring at the end of the year. Yeah, that I in retrospect, I'm kind of mad that we didn't talk about that more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Enberg also had a great uh, tribute to Tony Gwynn. I think we played that on the podcast as well. Is when, he retiring? He He's done, Enberg's done other sports as well, right? Yeah, but recently he was just just uh, baseball, just the Padres, yeah. and he was kind of part time Padres, right? Yeah, I think he was on the schooly like home broadcast. Yeah, schedule. I still think you think if Fox reached out to uh, Vin for to do the World Series, I, yeah, he doesn't want to. He doesn't. He didn't want to do the All Star Game. He doesn't want to do any playoff games. Wow. Yeah, in past years he had done um, six of the nine innings on radio if the Dodgers had made the playoffs because the, the TV broadcasters don't do the broadcasts and the, the playoffs, but uh, he had uh, decided not to do that this year. Got anything else? I do not. Uh, Tony La Russa is an idiot. Yes, true. It's uh, kind of all, all we'll say about that. Yeah, if you haven't already, go read Jeff Passan's um, hot take on La Russa and just the hypocrisy that exists in his uh, perception of African-Americans playing baseball. All right. On this week's podcast, we've got baseball on TV coming up, CSI New York. Uh, and then we've got out of the box. Uh, 
Um, TWTW, Paul, uh, any teaser there? Looking at offensive production by position and the implications it has for roster construction. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, sounds of the game. It is a, a bit unconventional. That's all I'll say. And then uh, we have a guest this week, our brother Kevin from Chicago. We'll talk to him about the Cubs clinching the NL Central and uh, just his take on um, the Cubs and a couple other baseball topics. And then we'll close it out with bottom of the ninth. Uh, but first, baseball on TV. Paul, it was your uh, week to choose. Yes, it was, and it's fitting. Um, the This episode of CSI New York revolves around a um, a Yankees-Red Sox game. Uh, that's why I say it's fitting, because the Yankees and Red Sox are playing in real life this weekend. Uh, this is a fairly complex episode. I'll try to give a recap, but uh, maybe you can fill in some of the holes if I... Eh, not so sure about that. So uh, the episode starts with two people being found dead. One is a sports agent, a woman, a good-looking woman, uh, young, and she is hit by a vehicle. And then the other is a middle-aged man, uh, a Boston Red Sox baseball fan, and they find him dead in his SUV with um, some internal bleeding due to like a some sort of force hitting his rib cage. And uh, you know, as the episode progresses, they determine that these two are related somehow. Um, the they, they figure, and this is they're jumping to a lot of conclusions here, but they figure that uh, both had to be murdered, or that they. The person uh, doing a great job. Yes. There had to be a person involved in both of their murders that could throw a baseball 94 miles per hour. Um, they they determined this because uh, the, the woman had escaped an apartment where uh, there was a, a baseball-sized hole through the bathroom door. And uh, they do like kind of a Mythbusters-type experiment to see how fast the ball would have to travel to go through a door. Anyways, they determined 94 miles per hour is the velocity, and so that significantly limits the number of people who um, could be responsible for killing this woman and this man. Um, turns out, and again, this is where I'm making all sorts of jumps, at the game, the Red Sox game, Red Sox-Yankees game in New York, the Red Sox fan that was killed was sitting next to a free agent player that was represented by the agent, and when the Jumbotron panned to those two, this Red Sox fan and the player, the Red Sox fan kissed the man. So two heterosexual men kissing one another. This pissed off the free agent player, he's a Latino player, so much that he ended up getting in an argument and then drilling him with a baseball in the parking garage after the game, which killed him. He didn't intend to do that, but um, killed him. So that explains the Red Sox fan dying. And then... Um, he was sleeping with this agent who was representing him, this woman. She, you know, fleed from him after he threw a baseball at her through the bathroom door, and then she ended up getting hit by the car. So he was responsible for both. Um, did I miss anything? Uh, I don't think so. CSI New York, give a little context. Season 1, episode 22. Yes. was the episode. Yes. <laughs> the show ran from 2004 to 2013 on CBS. I believe it was pretty popular. Gary Sinise is the main detective. He is famous for his work in three Tom Hanks movies. Can you name them, Paul? I think of him always Apollo 13. That's one. Um, was he in Castaway at all? He 
He was not. Um, what, what character could he have been in Castaway? 90% of the movie was him on an The island. man that married his woman. Is he Wilson? Um, he wasn't in Captain Phillips, was he? No. Yeah, I honestly only think of Apollo 13. Forrest Gump. Uh, yeah. And Green Mile. Green Mile is interesting because John mm-hmm. Coffey makes well, a reference. Well, in. His name in uh, Green Mile is John Coffey. Michael Clark Duncan is the actor, and he died in 2012. He was a very large black man. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that like his physical stature played a, a part in his, his death. Mm-hmm. Not 100% sure on that. Maybe I'm confusing him with John Coffey. He, he made an appearance in this yes. CSI episode. Did not really understand that plot line, I'll be honest. Uh, seemed like we'd missed something from a previous episode. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, yeah, the clip uh, we're going to play this week is the interrogation of this free agent Latino ball player. He is uh, Sucre from Prison Break, if you've seen that show. Um, so here is their interrogation of the free agent pitcher that can throw 94 miles per hour. You know, man, you got a mean fastball, you know that? Yeah, how do you do that? Two fingers on the laces, or do you just use fingertips? What, the thumb and the index finger grip a little tighter than the rest of them? Lady, you want pitching lessons? You should try your local Y. That's my changeup. It's not nearly as fast as the ball you threw in the gut of Gilbert Novotny. Yeah, and you used a much more powerful throw to break the panel in the bathroom door at Margot's apartment, and that wasn't very nice. I don't know what you're talking about. We got your DNA. We got you on assault, and we got you on murder. Murder? Yeah, you know that fastball you threw in the stadium parking lot? You ruptured Gilbert Novotny's spleen. What? He climbed into his car and then he died. I was angry, but I didn't mean to kill him. What were you so mad about, Reuben? They showed our section on the Jumbotron and he leaned over and kissed me. Right on the mouth. front of all those people. I can take a joke, but that was too far. I don't like looking like a fool. Wow, the Rosie. You got all hot under the collar over a little smooch. I'm a bastard, baby! Hey, hey, hey sweet cheeks, you're a good kissing now. Hey, give me one more. You want your ball? Come on, don't be a sore loser. Oh, really? Okay? Yeah, come Kiss that! And Margot? She thought it was funny, too. Yeah. Come on, you're not still angry about what happened at the game, are you? They hot. Looks to me like the only thing that gets you hot is another guy. Never say that to me again, oite. Loser. Loser? Who are you, who are you, who are you calling a loser? Abre la puerta. Loser! Who are you calling a loser, huh? Yeah, you've thrown your last fastball. You can kiss your baseball career goodbye. All right, for Out of the Box this week, I'm looking at an article by Mike Axisa of CBS Sports, spelled A-X-I-S-A. And the article I want to talk about is MLB's financial parity means teams are more willing to admit bad contract mistakes. Uh, So he essentially has two main points. Um, The first is that teams are financially healthy, more financially healthy than they have been in a long time. He lists some pretty surprising stats or ones that I wasn't aware of. 
Um, league revenue reportedly increased $500 million last season to approximately $9.5 billion overall. Um, and there's a good chance that after this year, revenue will top $10 billion, which is just crazy. You know, most of that's due to uh, TV and merchandise, that sort of thing. I think that the NFL is at like 13 and the NBA is like right where the MLB's at. Hmm. I would expect the NFL to be more. Yeah. Um, and then coming into the season, uh, I'll have you guess, um, out of the 30 teams, how many had a payroll of at least $100 million? That's a really good question. Uh, I will guess 18. 26. Hmm. Can I guess the four that didn't? Uh, I actually don't have them in front of me. Um, but, you you know, you have traditional small markets like the Royals. Uh, you know, they won the World Series last year, so they're going to have a little bit more money. But their payroll was $143 million coming in this year. That's a lot of money. Padres, $126 million. Um, so you just have a, a lot more money going around baseball. Um so that's his first point. Teams are financially healthy. His second point is because of that financial health, teams are much more willing to um, to say good riddance to players that have huge contracts but are, aren't performing. They're more willing to eat bad contracts. Um, and he lists out the the players that are he lists out the players that have essentially been told to to go away, paid to go away. Uh, you have Billy Butler, who was just recently released. He's owed approximately $11.5 million through the end of next year. The Athletics let him go. The Dodgers uh, said goodbye to Carl Crawford. He's owed approximately $35 million through next season. Uh, just a ton of money. Uh, Alex Guerrero, another Dodgers send-off. Uh, he's owed approximately $11.25 million through next year. Uh, Omar Infante of the Royals, second baseman, who had been terrible uh, this season. He's owed over $12 million through next year. Hector Oliveira, uh, Padres send-off, uh, he's owed approximately $32.5 million. Uh, that's through 2020. Jose Reyes is another person. He's owed almost $40 million through next year. And then uh, A-Rod is the most recent example. Um, he's owed $28 million through 2017. And then that doesn't even include Josh Hamilton, you know, who's still playing, but was released by the Angels, or traded by the Angels last year, and um, the Angels are still on the hook for um, around $28 million of his contract. So just an incredible list there um, of over $150 million worth of bad contracts that teams are still on the hook for, and yet um, teams seemingly, even you know, cash-strapped teams like the Athletics and the Royals are okay with letting guys like Billy Butler and Omar Infante go because of just the incredible wealth that's in baseball these days. I thought Mike did a good job of pointing out an interesting trend that I hadn't given much thought to, and I think it makes the product on the field better. You don't have guys like Omar Infante batting 200 and playing second base. You know, they're replaced, and Infante's in the minors or not playing baseball anymore. Um, but interesting trend. So when you say teams are more willing to admit it, uh, they're just more willing to say, this is a bad contract. It, yeah, or, admit it to the world. You're, re you're released. Yeah. Got it. All right, my article comes from the Orange County Register, Jeff Fletcher, as a baseball writer for that paper. The article is, Can Mike Trout Win AL MVP Despite Angels Record? So the prevailing thought with uh, Mike Trout is that he won't win the MVP this year because the Angels are 64-84, and 84, one of the worst teams in baseball. You would say that's the prevailing thought? 
I think so. Uh, I think that's kind of the narrative right now, or at least up until the last week or so. And uh, I am in the camp that says Trout should definitely win the MVP, uh, despite being the best player in uh, the American League and potentially all of baseball. Every year uh, since 2012, he only has one MVP. He's finished uh, second three times, two times to Miguel uh, Cabrera and once to Josh Donaldson last year, uh, 2014. This is his uh, only MVP. Uh, this year, he's definitely having the best statistical season of any player in uh, baseball, uh, at least for a hitter. His slash line is 318, 435, and 553. That 435 on-base percentage is the highest in baseball. 27 home runs, 26 for 31 in stolen bases. Going to play over 150 games for the uh, fourth year in a row. 9.6 war, according to baseball reference. That's more than one win above replacement than any other um, position player in baseball. And uh, it's the second best in his career. His rookie year, he had a 10.8 war, um, and this would be next best. So has a chance to top 10 if he keeps playing well to end the season, and uh, 10 war seasons are um, pretty historically rare mm-hmm. um, he's about, al- about once a decade through five seasons uh he's already in the top 200 position players of all time according to war mm-hmm. yeah just a great player but uh doesn't get the credit he deserves because the angels have put a terrible team around him in the article jeff uh, fletcher talks about two different camps of voters you've got the traditional voters um who think standings matter they believe that the mvp should come from a team that at least contends for a playoff spot and uh, preferably makes the postseason. The other camp is the best player camp. They think that one player's value has nothing to do with the quality of his teammates. And uh, Jeff uh, would consider himself part of the best player camp. I am also in that camp. Paul, would you consider yourself? Certainly. So, standings don't matter to you at all with MVP Um, voting? Correct. They don't matter. Standings don't matter. I think leverage matters to me. being clutch okay um he doesn't get into that but i i would probably disagree um in 2016 the best player camp is clearly going to vote for trout in the american league um like i said you can't really make an argument that another player is having a better season but the traditional voters uh don't really have a person to hold up you know miguel cabrera was that person for a couple years uh josh donaldson was that player last year and he was pretty close in value to Trout, so you couldn't really make um, a big disagreement. I think you even voted for Donaldson in your MVP last year, right, Paul? Yeah, they were, I think, either tied or, I mean, they were really close in war. Trout and uh, Donaldson. Was, Trout was higher. Slightly higher. This will be the fifth straight year in the American League. He's had the, the best war. Um, so I don't, I don't know what Donaldson's was. Um, I'll go back and listen to last year's uh last year's episode to see your reasoning for voting for Donaldson. Um but yeah there's there's a lot of players that those traditional voters could select. You've got Mookie Betts and David Ortiz with the Red Sox. You've got Jose Altuve with uh the Astros who are fringe wild card. Josh Donaldson I got hurt recently but he's right in right up there with the Blue Jays, Manny Machado, all these guys that play for good teams and are having decent seasons, but there's not one clear player to to vote for so fletcher hypothesizes that um, votes could get dispersed amongst all of them and that that would be the way that trout would win the mvp 
And uh, he makes a good point that, or observation that traditional voters don't have a problem voting for Trout as second best. Uh, and so, um, because Trout will probably either be first or second on everyone's ballot, uh, that could um, allow him to, to be higher than other guys. So, how does that work? Is it like just. It's like a, you get points based on first, second, third, fourth, and fifth. I think. So it's like the person who wins MVP isn't necessarily the person who has the most first place votes. Exactly. So the 2009 NL Cy Young race, Adam Wainwright had the most first place votes, but finished third overall because the votes were split so evenly amongst Lincecum and uh, Chris Carpenter. Um, so that's an example of how that could um, how that could work. Um, I'm definitely in the pro Trout MVP camp. I think he should win it. Um, I don't think we're appreciating his greatness as much as we should. Like I said, this is the fifth straight year he'll lead the league in war. And I think it would be the fifth straight year he'd lead all of baseball except for Harper's year last year. Hmm. Um, and only one MVP is kind of laughable. Um, kind of like LeBron, I think. Yeah. We just, um, we know that it kind of gets old, so we, we want to vote for somebody new. But um, because no one else is stepping up from that, a camp of players for good teams. Um, it's allowing Trout to to maybe win the MVP this year. Yeah, it's insane that his consistent greatness actually hurts him a little bit. Exactly. Yeah, same thing with LeBron. All right. Well, that was out of the box. Next up, we have Paul's TWTW. When you can put some of those categories, you know, you got your OBPS and all that, and the VORPs. When they put in TWTW. And then interface those numbers with TWTW under that category, then you might have something cooking. What, what, what TW is? Yeah, what is that? That's the will to win. All right, so as I mentioned in our intro uh, for t- the, my TWTW segment, um, I want to take a look at offensive production by position and um, maybe draw out a few implications for how that should impact roster construction. So, Pete, I know you're not a huge fan of guessing games, but if you had to take a guess, at the positions in baseball, I'm talking just the average for each position. Uh, who would you say are which positions are below the league average OPS? League average OPS is 741. So which positions? Would, yeah, would be lower than that. Yep, that's a good question. I would say, definitely say catcher. And how many are there? How many positions? Uh, eight positions. Well, but how many? I'm not gonna tell you. <laughs> I would definitely say catcher, I guess about half of the positions might have to be below, right? That's how the average works. I'll say catcher, shortstop, and you break it down like left, center, right Mm -hmm. field. I'll go um, catcher, shortstop, center field. Close. Catcher, shortstop, left field, and center field. Left field. Yeah, I know that was surprising for me. Yeah, so... The entire ranking going low to high here is catcher, shortstop, center field, left field, right field, second base, third base, and first base. And you have a pretty big disparity. Catcher is at 701, and then uh, the the leader, first base, is um, at 782. So you're talking over an 80-point difference in OPS. And uh, as I was just listing those out and taking a look at them, just a few takeaways. Uh, Second base is actually a position of considerable depth. This year. 
this year, right? I uh, I had never really considered, you know, in my mind, I'd always thought second base shortstop are kind of similar, right around the same. You know, I might have guessed that second base, you had a few more power hitters, um, so maybe OPS would be a little bit higher. But um, it's it's a thirty point difference, and um, that was surprising to me. And you have seventeen second basemen who are over league average, compared to just five regulars above um, league average at catcher. So it's just it's surprising um, to me. Um, and then uh, good good offensive first basemen are a dime a dozen. Um, you have twenty above average first baseman Mark Reynolds who plays for the Rockies, I believe, uh, is at 802, so over 60 points above average, and he has a war this year of 0.1. Mm-hmm. Um, that 802 OPS would come in six, that catcher. So he'd be a top six catcher at, with that offensive production, but he's 20th among first basemen well, at 0.1 war. That war you're talking about also includes other things too, right? Yeah, like defense. And yeah, so that stuff could be factored in. Right, but it's still... His offensive war is probably like 0.5 or something. I'm always surprised, though. So Jose Abreu is similar in that, you know, his numbers look okay, but then when you look at his war, it's always a little bit lower. Or when you kind of look at him compared to other first basemen. Sure. Um, And so with both of those, you know, second baseman being a position of depth, good offense at first base, not a whole lot of offense at catcher, I think that that should play and is playing a role in... Uh, team's decision making as they build out their rosters. You know, one recent example would be Corey Seager. So there was some debate in the minors about whether he could be a shortstop long term, whether he had the mobility and the arm to be a shortstop. And the Dodgers, you know, were adamant that he stay there. And I think one of the reasons for that is because of how rare a really solid or a great offensive shortstop is. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's going to have a lot more value at shortstop even than than second base. Um, and you could you can find second basemen that are at le- league average or above, whereas it's difficult to do that at shortstop. But then you also talk about like trading for Jonathan Lucroy. Um, you know his numbers are good, they're impressive, but they're phenomenal when you look at all the other catchers around him. Yep. Um, so I just thought that was interesting, and also speaks to Mike Trout's value in center. Uh, I didn't list center field, but it's 736 OPS, so it's five points below league average not a position of strength um, offensively. And so what he's doing in center, it's even more impressive. Yeah, I think the one of the things that drew me to uh, wins above replacement as a stat was that it took into account uh, what position you played. Mm-hmm. I know that can get messy, especially with guys like Chris Bryant that move around some. Uh, but as a fantasy player for a few years before I got into like sabermetrics, uh, you always knew, like, oh, a catcher that hits is valuable because he plays catcher. And uh, there really wasn't, like, a way to differentiate that when looking at a player. Like, how do you compare uh, Mike Piazza to, like, his numbers might be as good as, like, Sammy Sosa. But mm-hmm. Piazza has a lot more value because he can catch. And uh, War, I remember, like, the first time I had heard about it, and that would be a fun thing to go back to is when I first heard about it. But mm-hmm. the thing that intrigued me was, like, oh, that makes sense that, just as one stat, you can compare people on mm-hmm. uh, or position you play on defense. Yeah, and it's you know it's hugely important. Um, it's similar to uh, like in basketball when you look at offensive production for uh, like a power forward or a center. If you just look at you know their production in terms of points, 
uh, it's not that big a deal, but when you stack it up compared to like what other guys are averaging, mm-hmm. you know, th- that context impacts how you assess the player. Exactly. All right. That was TWTW. Next up, sounds of the game. All right. This is Peter, the sounds of the game. This week, like I mentioned earlier, a little unconventional. Paul, you sent this to me. Wow, you're going with it. Oh, yeah. Paul did my work for me. Uh, W.P. Kinsella wrote the book Shoeless Joe in 1982, and this book inspired the movie Field of Dreams, which came out in 1989. This past week, uh, Mr. Kinsella died at the age of 81. He was a Canadian author, uh, wrote a lot about baseball, uh, but this was by far his most popular work, sold over a million copies of Shoeless Joe. It's actually pretty sad. I watched another interview with him where he um, said he wouldn't go back to baseball after the strike. Or at, this was so like t- 2001. He didn't go back to baseball after the strike. Because the 94 strike. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I hadn't heard that. But yeah, that is that is sad. Kinsella wrote about baseball in one of his books. A ballpark at night is more like a church than a church. Wow. Not exactly sure what that means, but uh, pretty profound. Yes, not sure I agree with the theology behind it. <laughs> uh, Sounds like a Canadian author, though. There is something special about a ballpark at night. Sounds like a Canadian author. I don't know. <laughs> I was trying to be as mysterious as that <laughs> quote is. Yep. Okay, so we're not going to hear from Mr. Kinsella. Instead, we're going to hear from Roger Ebert, who is a famous film critic. You may have heard of him. He wrote for the Chicago Sun-Times for many years about films. Uh, he was born and raised and lived in Champaign, Illinois, uh, where Paul and I record this podcast every week. Uh, Mr. Ebert died in 2013. Uh, like I said, he wrote for the Chicago Sun-Times and um, was kind of the, the, be- the best film critic of his day. Um, people trusted his opinion with films more than any other. I would say, or that's kind of what my interpretation of his career yes. is. Very well regarded. Yep. Uh, Ebert Fest is a festival in Champaign that Ebert started in 1999, and that lives on to today. It's a big deal. Every spring, I think, mm-hmm. is when it happens. A um, ton of people come in and, and go to a uh, really cool theater, old theater in Champaign, for a few uh, few days. Uh, so Mr. Ebert and a Chicago uh, Tribune writer, George Siskel, another film critic, uh, they recorded a PBS show, Sneak Preview, for many years, and um, they trademarked the phrase, two thumbs up. So if you've used that uh, or given people two thumbs up when they do something good, you can thank them for that. And uh, yeah, they did the show, and so the clip we're going to listen to this week is from their 1989 show when they discuss uh, Field of Dreams coming out. One of them loved it. The other one, not so impressed. Field of Dreams about an Iowa farmer who hears a voice which advises him to build a baseball diamond right there in the cornfield. It's a magical movie, one of the best I've seen this year. It stars Kevin Costner and Amy Madigan as an Iowa farm couple who are just about making ends meet. And then one day, Costner hears a voice out in the field and it advises him to build a baseball diamond on his farm. Then he sees a vision of the diamond, and the voice hints that if he builds it, shoeless Joe Jackson of the 1919 Black Sox just might come back from the grave to redeem himself and his reputation by playing on it. 
Costner builds the diamond against everybody's opposition, except that he does have the support of his wife. But it looks like his decision may bankrupt his farm. Hey, you realize how much this land is worth? Yeah. Yeah. 2200 bucks an acre. Oh, you gotta realize he can't keep a useless baseball diamond in the middle of rich farmland. Another voice tells Costner to take a journey out east and find a great American rider now in seclusion. The rider, played by James Earl Jones, once dreamed of playing baseball. Son! Well, what? Son! New York Giants, 1922. He played one game. He never got the bet. Son! What did I see, Ray? Give him Minnesota! I mean, we were the only ones who saw it. Did you hear the voice, too? It's all right to admit it. It's what told me to find you. Did you, did you hear it? Later, the two of them travel up to Minnesota, where Costner finds a legendary and saintly doctor, played by Burt Lancaster, who sacrificed his dream of playing in the majors to go into medicine. Chances squint to the sky so blue that it hurts your eyes just to look at it. To feel the tingle in your arms, you connect with the ball. To run the bases, stretch a double into a triple. And flop face first into third. Wrap your arms around the bag. That's my wish, Reconcilla. Well, wouldn't you know, Shoeless Joe Jackson does turn up to play once again on that diamond out there in the field. He's played by Ray Liotta. Ray, I hope you don't mind, but we got tired of just having practices, so we brought another team out with us so we could have some real games. I don't mind. Where'd they come from? Where did we come from? You wouldn't believe how many guys wanted to play here. I'm here to beat them off with a stick. This is a very hard movie to describe, and that's part of what makes it so good. It's the kind of fantasy that James Stewart or Henry Fonda might have felt at home in. A movie about daring to dream and putting your money where your mouth is. It's also a wonderful baseball movie. The sight of the ghosts of those great old baseball players materializing out of the cornfields to hit a few and feel a few, to play one more time, captures in a very special way what is timeless about the game of baseball. Field of Dreams is so fragile and so perfect, it's like a miracle, a completely original and visionary movie about the love of baseball. Well, I know that that's what it's trying to be, and I certainly wanted it to be that, but it didn't work on me. Uh, the fantasy fell apart. Bull Durham, to me, of recent pictures, is to me even more pure uh, about love of baseball. I mean, it, for me. Uh, this is a picture that really tries uh, to pull off a very difficult thing, building that baseball field in the cornfield. And I like the visual look of it. I'll never forget seeing the field in, in the field. In the field. Uh, but when it starts to collect the other characters and bring it in, the picture, I think, is just too ambitious for its own good. And oh. I did, it's not bad. It's not a bad film. It's just, I just oh, didn't buy the conceit. See, I really thought it was a very particularly good film. Now, Bull Durham is a realistic film, more or less. I mean, it's oh, oh, more or less in the real it's world. very colorful. This movie is about the soul of baseball. This is about the intangible, mystical, unspeakable things that people feel when they go to a baseball park. Yeah and about the American history that's evolved in it. There's one speech in this movie about the history of baseball that literally made a tingle go up my spine because it's so heartfelt. If you love baseball, I think it's a real, real uh, I'm, special movie. I'm a, I'm a baseball nut enough to know that they, uh, when they say there's a very good line, they're saying about Ty Cobb not being invited because uh, none of the other players wanted to bring him back when they bring back all the, he, he was my hero, and he's one of, I was glad that he wasn't a part of that thing. Uh, I just think that this conceit here is very, either you either buy it or you don't. It's one of those things, and I didn't buy it. I, it's, I think they're just trying too hard. So if you couldn't tell, Mr. Ebert was the fan. That was his voice. And then his partner, Mr. Siskel, uh, was not impressed with him. Uh, yeah, I, I don't get the criticism. Like, 
too ambitious. You're making a movie about dead players coming back to life. Like it seemed like he was knocking it for not being realistic. But well, and it's like it was written as a book beforehand. Right. So it's I mean it's not like they're making up the scripts from nowhere. Uh, did you know? Fun fact about Mr. Ebert. Uh, he dated Oprah Winfrey. That can't be true. Yeah. They briefly dated. We're very good friends. Um, there's a Roger Ebert statue in Champaign um, as well. Yes. Uh, old- $175,000 statue. Our older brother, John, and uh, current friend, Gabe, live a couple houses away from Ebert's uh, childhood home. Okay. You can still visit it today. All right, that was Sounds of the Game. Next up, we have our interview with Kevin. We are joined on the podcast by our uh, Chicago correspondent, our brother Kevin. Uh, Kevin, how's it going? Good. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Yes, doing well. Uh, So we don't uh, have a ton of specific questions for you, just that we we hadn't heard from you in a while uh, since Mm -hmm. the Brothers podcast. So we thought it would be fun to have you on again, and I didn't want to uh, set up an interview with, uh, like, a baseball writer this week. So sure, you're you're filling that void. Yeah, well, you didn't have to go to great lengths to set up time with me. It was just a quick text to come <laughs> on, so that worked out well for you guys. Uh, yeah. So has the has the feedback been uh, asking for me and John to come back on? Yes, overwhelming. Hopefully. I'm sure. That is, uh, I get that from time to time, mainly with friends from the from the area. That mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that I think only listen to those episodes. The brothers podcast. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't blame them for only listening to that podcast. It's always a pretty good one. Yes. Well, uh, I guess Paul and I've already talked about it, but um, what's your current take on the Lovey Smith era and Champagne? Wow, I did not expect a Lovey Smith question. Um. You know, it's fine. I think we have this tendency to overreact to really small sample sizes. Um, the I'm just struck by um, the level of talent on Illinois. Watching that game, I mean, it was clear that we were outmanned by Western Michigan. So you mean lack, like I've, by our lack of talent? Yeah, like yeah. low level of talent. Yep. Yeah. Um, our players just aren't very good, and that's that has nothing to do with Lovey. Give Lovey a couple of years to get some of his guys in there. Um, but, yes, yeah, it's, it's pretty ugly right now. But what's the difference um, is that there's some hope there that we have the right people in place to get things turned around. So even though the product on the field is poor, there's hope there that this thing will get turned around. I feel like if we would have hired Smith right after Zook, that would have been like the perfect situation. Oh, yeah. Because you're you're having him coach up a ton of talent. Um, that Zook yeah. wasn't able to. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. And that that team after Zook, if I'm remembering right, had a pretty good group of guys still. Yeah, well, similar um, to similar to this year, there's going to be several NFL players. Yeah, uh, yeah, which they're, is they're which is frustrating. Not, well, they're just not deep at all. Exactly. And, um, the offensive line is really bad. Mm-hmm. It's really bad. I think once we jump into that Big Ten schedule, it could get uglier. Yeah, I, I think we should see if we can concede that Ohio State game. I'm le- <laughs> I'm legitimately fearful for like our offensive line. Guys that yeah. sh- sh- shouldn't even be playing for MAC teams are starting against Ohio State. I think yeah. it, isn't that at Ohio State? Um, let's see. 
I don't remember. Yeah, because I mean, um, last last year it was Ohio State in Champaign, so I think it's was it. I don't yeah. remember that game at all. Really? You were you came with John and I. There was a was anno- I there? annoying Ohio State fan in front of us. Oh, I do remember that. Yeah, that lady who sat in front of us. Exactly. Oh, she was terrible. <laughs> yeah, I actually think of that fan every now and then. <laughs> Whenever I find myself cheering a little too much for Ohio State, I do remember you, her. Do you think she thinks of you? <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it. Yeah. Well, uh, g- getting into baseball, um, mm-hmm. the Cubs clinched a playoff spot, won the Central Did Division. They? Oh, that's good news. Good to hear. <laughs> You hadn't heard that? You hadn't heard that? No, I obviously yes, I heard that. What uh what's your take on it? So we I don't think we've had you on the podcast, but you're more in my camp uh with the Chapman stuff. Yeah, I uh I, I definitely don't feel the same way that I felt about this team um currently as I did before the Chapman acquisition. Um I certainly am still cheering for the Cubs and I you know, certainly still really uh, I'd still really enjoy, obviously, a long postseason run. Um, it just feels a little bit different um, because of that acquisition. I think it didn't make sense from uh, both a baseball standpoint. I think you know how I feel about closers being overvalued, but then also just from a you know liking the team standpoint to have someone like him on a team I don't love. So you know, I I still was you know, really excited when they clinched and, um, you know, the team is still full of players that I really, really like. And so it was fun watching them celebrate, but certainly exciting that they won the central. I mean, it's not like that's the type of thing that's happening a lot throughout Cubs history. So pretty exciting stuff. First time since 2008. That's correct. Yeah. I think 07, 08, they, uh, won the central both years. And then before that, I think it was 89, mm-hmm. because they won the wild card in 98 and the wild card in 03. Yep. And so before that, 89, and I think before that, 84, and then I think before that, wasn't it like 45? <laughs> Didn't we make the World crazy. Series in 1954? Isn't that a thing? No. In it was 45? Yeah. I get them switched around. <laughs> But it is pretty crazy when you think about Cubs history. It's so easy to remember uh, <laughs> when they went to the playoffs because it just happens so rarely. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, winning, winning your division is a much bigger deal now than it was before the, the two wild card teams per league. Um, you know, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, avoiding that one game, basically playing in game, is huge in baseball, obviously. Now, you mentioned that you're rooting for a long Cubs playoff run. And this is a question I'm trying to process right now as well. What's your ideal uh, Cubs playoff run? Do they win the World Series? Um, ideally, I, that's a tough question. Ideally, yes, they'd win the World really? Series. Really? You, you want them to win? You've changed. I've changed a little bit. The, the reason is because the, there's still – a lot of players on this team that I'd really like to see win a World Series. And the presence of Chapman on the team doesn't take away from that. I would still really like for David Ross to win Ah, a World Series on this roster. Um, And then, you know, the team is pretty likable. Like, I really like a lot of these guys. And this will be, you know, one of the Cubs' best chances to win, I think. I mean, you don't know what the future holds, but 
you can't really take for granted that we will be there every single year, even though that's the way the team is set up. So, yeah, I think ideally I'd like to see them win the World Series, but the big difference for me is that I, if they don't win the World Series, I really don't think I'm going to be as disappointed as I would have been if it wouldn't have been for the Chapman trade, um, which I know, you know, to a lot of people sounds pretty ridiculous and maybe even a little petty. But, you know, if we don't do it this year and we don't sign Chapman, I, I won't be totally devastated about that. Yeah, and I, but I think, and I'm probably moving more towards that direction. The thing is, though, when you're, when you're kind of admitting that your disappointment level is not going to be as high, I think mm-hmm. that uh, that means that your joy level, if they win it, won't be as high. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, there's no question about that. And that was, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I was so frustrated with the Chapman trade is that it takes away from my enjoyment of this season that previously had been so high. I mean, I was really loving this team. So, yeah, the excitement and the joy and the satisfaction as a fan that I'll get if they win the World Series will definitely be lower with Chapman on the team than had he not made that trade. I have a question for uh, for both of you, actually. Um, when I think back to different World Series winners, I think back to like the Marlins in 2003 and the Sox in 05 and the Red Sox, I have like specific kind of figureheads for those teams that I think back to. So like Beckett in 2003 with the, the Marlins, Paul Canerica mm-hmm. with the White Sox. I mean, among others, but just my initial thought when I think back Did to Did you hear it. that Hawk was making a case for A.J. Przinsky to make the Hall of Fame yeah. the other night? When I saw that headline, no, that was the first thing. That I thought can't of. be real. Oh, Is that real? Oh, oh yeah, of course. He oh, he introduced Jimmy Rollins every at bat to start this year as future Hall of Famer Jimmy Rollins. Um, anyways, uh, the point I was making is just like you attach certain players as figureheads to these teams. What is your best guess at this point for who that person will be um, for like a non-Cubs fan for for the Cubs this year? I mean, that's difficult to say without the the postseason. But would that be Theo? Or Madden, or uh, maybe a Kyle Hendricks. Just what's what's your best guess for that right now? You mean if they make a run toward the World Series? Yeah, if they were to win the World Series. Well, I think so much of that depends on who plays really well in the postseason. Right. Um, So it would be a total guess, obviously. You know, I'd like to think that that could be Bryant or Rizzo. Obviously, those are a couple of the best players throughout the season. Um, you know, I when I think of this regular season, Addison Russell will be someone who always comes to mind just because, you know, you look at his numbers and they're pretty good. And defensively, obviously, he's one of the best players in the league. Mm-hmm. But offensively, he's got the, the high home run total and the high RBI total. Um, but he, it just seems like he's come up big in so many moments. And I, like, I'll always remember this season – and I think it was the home opener when he hit that three-run homer in the eighth. Yep. Um, that ended up being the, the game-winning home run. Um, there are just so many moments, and that, that catch, sliding catch down the line that saved several runs uh, just a few weeks ago. For for this season, I'll really remember Addison Russell as the guy who really came up big, even though um, statistically Bryant and Rizzo are two of the kind of the the best performers on the Cubs this year? Uh, That's a good question. Two people came to my head, uh, Jason Hamill and Chris Coughlin. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, so here's the thing. And Dave Martinez. Peter, so here's that's not a bad guess, though, because if any of those guys have a uh, memorable postseason, you know, something crazy had to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like three of the top Cubs starters go down uh, <laughs> in the first round, and Hamill has to pitch on, like, three days rest throughout the rest of the playoffs. That is that is nuts, though. I agree with you that, like, the, we attach those players primarily because they have, like, a good – Game seven, like I remember Luis Gonzalez for the Diamondbacks, only because he had that um, the single off Rivera, mm-hmm. and I have no idea what else he did. I assume he played right. well. Um, the rest you mean of the in series. the postseason, right? I think yeah, it's a combination of uh, pretty good player. Like they have to have a baseline level of good play. Like we knew Gonzalez was good, well probably steroid aided, but um, and then he gets a clutch hit. But what about this? So I, I think that you end up remembering some of the not-so-great players when they come up bigger than they should have in specific moments. So I'm thinking... Jim Larratt. Uh, so well, when you think about the 2003 Yankees, who do you think of in the postseason? Aaron Bleepin' Boone. Aaron Boone, yeah. And I, I have no idea what he did in the postseason that year, but we'll always remember that home run he hit against the Red Sox. Did you know that was in uh, Game 7? Yeah. That's nuts. I, I often think back to those uh, big playoff moments, and it ends up being like, oh, that was actually only like Game 4, and they had all these yeah. chances left. But for a Red Sox fan, that must have been just devastating. Well, and that's what's crazy. That postseason, it really looked like it was going to be Red Sox-Cubs in the World Series, and then both of those teams had these pretty crazy collapses to prevent that from happening. And... In that game, the Yankees, I believe, scored three runs in the bottom of the eighth to tie the game yeah. before the walk-off and extra innings. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's fun, though. I mean, that's one of the reasons why the postseason is so fun because baseball, to me, is such a great historical sport. You know, um, we like players are able to sort of create these legacies uh, in such a short sample size where – you know, if one particular guy has a great couple series or has a great, you know, couple moments, all of a sudden that guy is remembered basically forever as the guy who did this or did that. And I think that's one thing that makes the postseason in baseball so much fun. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, a couple quick hitters to end our time together. Uh, John Gray, third overall pick from the Rockies a few years ago, he struck out 16 batters at Coors Field uh, on Saturday night uh, that tied Danny Duffy for second this year um, uh, for pitchers with strikeouts in a game. Do you remember who had more strikeouts than 16 this year? Uh, Scherzer did. There you go. And 20 20 strikeouts. Yeah, because didn't he have a chance for 21 in the ninth? Yep, Yep, I believe so. Yeah, I Uh, remember following that game on Twitter. Yep, May 11th against the Tigers. And then the next one, who is your American League MVP? Paul and I have talked about it. There's kind of different American League MVP. Yeah, two different camps. I, I'm just curious to know which oh, which camp you fall in. It's Mike Trout. Are you Are you sure? Frank Thomas has gone on record as saying uh, Edwin Encarnacion is his MVP. Are oh, you? that's crazy. <laughs> I, actually, the the other, I I think the other player that uh, could give um, Trout a run for his money is Altuve. 
he's having a fantastic season. He is, but he's been hurt the last couple weeks. And yeah, I know, but I'm saying if if you're trying to figure out who that race is between, um, it's probably between Trout, Altuve, and Donaldson's having a nice year too. I think if if Machado has like an unbelievable last two weeks and gets the Orioles in, I think he has a nice Yeah, you know, chance. I always forget about Machado. He is an amazing player. He's really good. Oh, he's fantastic. I, Mookie Betts is the. I think, oh yeah, I, I forgot about win. Betts. So yeah. I, I think there's two camps. You but either, if you take Mookie Betts out of the lineup, do they really suffer that much? I mean, yes. <laughs> uh, two different camps. One, you're like, oh, it's just the best player, which I fall into. And of course that's Trout, and Altuve is a clear second. If you're if you say, oh, this player has to be on a winning team, I don't think the Astros uh, are going to make the playoffs, and I don't think they've been seen as a surprising team. They've been a disappointing team, so I don't think he'll get yeah. the kind of traditionalist okay. vote. So, so I think Bet- so, Betts or Ortiz is probably going to be the the winner in that camp, but it just depends how the votes shake out. So I, I will never understand the argument that the MVP needs to be on a winning team. I think that's insane. There's just the the precedent is you give the award to the best player. And exactly. I almost wonder if they should change the name of it to just the most outstanding player because we have all these ridiculous conversations about value. I remember back in 2008, there were some discussions mid-year about giving the MVP to Kosuke Fukudome, because <laughs> without him, the Cubs wouldn't have changed their approach and started taking pitches. Not a bad point. Base. Not a bad point. Just these insane conversations like, well, if you take this player off of this team, then these other things wouldn't have happened. So, MVP right there. Um, it's just a re- it's always given to the best player in the league, and that's just how it should be, because I don't know how. I mean, obviously we have advanced statistics now but when you talk about um adding value to your team i mean you add the most valuable you're you add the most value to your team when you're the best player and so i just think it's, it should be given to the best player yep i i concur um one final question for me uh i'm interested in your guys's uh feelings about the rotation for the playoffs but i'm going to ask mm-hmm. it in a unique way so the mets and um Indians have both lost a couple starters in the last month, uh, and you know really last good, couple of days. Yeah, last couple of days, Degrom went down, and Kras goes out. Sounds like Danny Salazar's out as well. So if the Cubs, if you were told today, like the Cubs are going to have two starters go down um, before the the playoffs, who would you pick? And I'm talking obviously hmm. about the top four. You know, throw Hamill out. <laughs> so we have to lose two starters, right? Yeah. But you get to pick can who I, those two can are. Can I count uh, Mike Montgomery, our sixth starter, as one of now, them? No, I'm, I'm going to say say what you want about him, but Chapman, very valuable. So you know what? I'll <laughs> let Chapman not be on the playoff roster. <laughs> really sorry that he lost his left arm in an accident. Hey, now. Hey, now. <laughs> Crossing a the line there, Peter. He can get a new arm. <laughs> yeah, technology's amazing these days with pitchers. Um, pretty easy answer, well, right? Uh, what do you say? Pretty easy answer. You, you, Lester and Ar- Arietta are the two that you want to keep. Wait, but isn't Paul's question that well, you yeah. have to lose? Well, then two? you just you lose uh, Lackey and uh, Hendricks. Wow. No. 
What? No. <laughs> Hendricks. Has He's gonna be the Cy Young. Yeah, but he remember last year in the playoffs, his stuff doesn't work. I I don't buy into that. Not yet, anyway. Um, <laughs> I don't think there's anything different about the playoffs versus the regular season, other than that it's an insanely small sample size. The pressure. And you can't. And you can't. Well, yeah, there's pressure, but you can't really uh, come to these conclusions or generalizations based on such a small number of innings pitched. I mean, basically you're deciding that Hendricks stuff doesn't work in the playoffs off of like a couple starts. Like it's it's hard to be precise when all of the pressure is on you and he has to be so precise. But like I heard someone uh, on the radio the other day saying, making the same point that the soft stuff doesn't work. And it, I can't remember if it was um, Bruce Devine or John Heyman, maybe. But um, the evidence was that Glavin and Maddox weren't very good in the postseason. And I just I don't think you can take two Hall of Famers and, uh, and say that their stuff just doesn't work given a slightly different setting. I just don't buy that. Um, so... Given that, I'd say Lester and Hendricks are easily the two best pitchers right now. Yeah, I think Arietta's going to struggle a lot in the playoffs uh, mm-hmm. with control. Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, thanks. Mm-hmm. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. We'll yeah, have, have you on again in the playoffs, get a Chicago vibe. Yeah, absolutely. If the Cubs win the World Series, you'll have to be our uh, eyes and ears on the ground. Yeah, I'll see if I can get a press pass for that. <laughs> <laughs> would the would the parade go anywhere near you? Uh, I I don't know actually. Uh, my guess is well, I don't know. This is Sox country where I am, so they they may steer clear of this place. Well, yeah. uh, thanks for uh, being on. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Okay, moving on to bottom of the ninth. Thanks to Kevin for hopping on with us. Uh, first up, say my name. Alrighty, the name this week, uh, Candy Maldonado. Uh, his real name is Candido. Do you like Candy Maldonado or Candido Maldonado more? I go can Candido. Uh, considering Candido for our next child. It's a boy. No. Good to I, know. Candido can go. Do you know, do you know the way. gender? I do not know that gender. I thought you did. No. I thought the thing was that you guys knew it before anyone else. Nope. Neither of us know. You won't know until he or she is born. Correct. Hmm. Uh, Candy Maldonado was an outfielder uh, in the um, 80s. He made his debut September 7th, 1981. Uh, He went on to be a pretty average player, I think 245 um, career hitter, but he played for a bunch of teams, um, made his debut with the Dodgers, or made his debut with the Giants, but also played for the Dodgers, Blue Jays, Indians, and Cubs. Uh, his career ended in 1995. All right. Um, next up, my Yahoo answer. Paul, I was motivated by your uh, TWTW about positions to play. That can't possibly be true unless you did the research during the podcast. I did it during that segment. So this week's question from Yahoo Answers, what is the best position to play in baseball? I play left field. Is that good? The Depends when he's asking. <laughs> the best answer says uh, the pitcher is in command. The catcher is like a guard for the pitcher. The first baseman is like a leader. Second, third, and short are the first baseman's assistants, and the outfield is backup. 
What a terrible answer. <laughs> in like Little League, maybe. Yeah, that was Alexander the Great. That was Yahoo user Alexander the Great. Okay, uh, next up we have uh, Pick Your Team. Uh, we are closing in. We have weeks 25 and 26 left in the baseball season. Uh, through week 24, I have a slight lead, 97 and 72, versus Paul's 96 and 76. So, Paul, you're four games back in the lost column, just one in the win column. I'm not sure what we do. Just do winning percentage, right? Uh, I guess, well, winning percentage or like how they do uh, game is back if you played different amounts of games. So right now you're four back in the lost column, but you're you have you know three more wins than you should, so you'd be like two and a half back. Right. Maybe I say we just do winning percentage. <laughs> okay. Because we're gonna finish the year with because of off days and stuff, we're gonna have different amounts. Right. I think uh, the stars will align and we'll end with the same amount. Yeah, we'll see. My Maybe team, I think next year uh, we could do um, the first to a hundred wins. I kind of like that. Paul, who's your team this week? I'm gonna go with the Athletics and Angels. And then your last week will be. Who do you got left? Uh, I don't know. The Cubs. I think I haven't haven't picked the Cubs so far. Really? I'm kidding. Not I true. The best team in baseball. Do you know who the? I have no idea. <laughs> did, when you were looking for teams, didn't you see who you hadn't picked yet? Uh, I'll tell you what. Here's what I did. I went through teams in my head and did Control F for find and replace, and uh, both the Athletics and Angels were. At the top of the list because they start with an A. So I was going alphabetical. Got it. Got it. Yeah, my team this week is the Padres, and then the last week of the season is the White Sox. So this is a true test. Planning preparation. Will it beat out Paul's half-ace method of selecting his teams? Hmm. And you've gone on record as saying that we only have to sing the first like 20 seconds of the song? Uh yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, so the loser has to wrap the better up intro by himself. Unless Nelly wants to do a little duet with us. Okay, well that does it for our podcast. A few things to look forward to with the foot in the box stuff. Uh our blogathon the last week of the regular season. We've decided to, uh to do that another year. It was pretty fun last year, so the week leading up to the playoffs, we will be uh posting on the blog every day. You can check out um, my kind of playoff primer or preview. I'll post that every Wednesday or Thursday. Uh, you can check out the one I did last week, and then I've got two more before the playoffs start. Um, and then lastly, our playoff challenge. I mentioned it a few weeks ago, but um, we're going to have a playoff fantasy challenge with a cool prize, so be on the lookout for that as well, similar to what we did with the over-unders at the beginning of the season. Who are we looking at? Who's the over and under uh like the likely winner this Bur- year? Bertle S. He's been in, in the lead since I can remember and controlled uh, like a controlling lead, not not a close one. We'll have to bring him on to the podcast. Yeah, we'll see uh, if he exists. It's Theo Epstein. <laughs> that would be awesome. Okay. And then, of course, our playoff preview where I interview writers for each of the 10 playoff teams. We'll try, try that again this year. Maybe it's too ambitious. Mr. Siskel might think it's too ambitious. 
Well, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Make sure to leave us a review there if you enjoy the program. Send us emails at afootinthebox at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at afootinthebox. Check us out online at afootinthebox.com. That's where you can find all the blog posts I referenced earlier. Uh, well, I think that does it. Probably anything else. Have a great week, and remember to keep a foot in the box. We'll talk to you next week.